This podcast is brought to you by The Province. Listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Here are your hosts, Paul Chapman and E. Spencer Kite. Welcome to Province Sports Radio, Keyboard Kimura edition. I'm Paul Chapman, joined by Spencer Kite, and I always love these editions, Spence, because we have a pay-per-view this weekend to talk about. We do. We have have arrived at UFC 193 at Etihad Stadium in Melbourne. Um, should be a massive show. Should. Should be the first event, I would think, in five years the tops a million buys. So we'll be looking out for that on sort of Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm sure we'll get some early reports from the great Dave Meltzer about that. So should be should be interesting. Now, yeah, it should be interesting. Again, it um, the, as you know, Ronda Rousey perplexes me for a number of reasons. <laughs> there, there is the spectacle of this. There's no doubt, but I, I am puzzled in a way to hear you say that it will top a million buys because we have had good pay-per-views where I I don't know that we ever get completely accurate numbers, but I've been a little surprised that the numbers, uh, there doesn't seem to have been a ton of momentum for UFC uh, to me in the last six months in terms of the mainstream media. Uh, I don't know that if, if that's a John Jones factor with him dropping out with, you know, not having, you know, front loading the year maybe, and now tailing off a little bit, but Rousey is one of those people who moves the needle and there's been a ton of outside MMA media coverage of this. And I guess that's why it will top a million is there's no way around it that the hype sells. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, you, you look at the fight against Betch Cohea at UFC 190, um, not a ton of inside MMA hype about it. You know, one of the biggest underdogs she's faced, if not the biggest underdog she's faced thus far, and sort of just a fight that everyone expected to go fairly similar to how it went. But what we missed in the build up to that and what we didn't think about and factor in was this was Ronda Rousey, who since the last time she fought had been in Fast and Furious 7, had been in the Entourage movie, had won two ESPYs, um, which was broadcast on ABC and viewed by 7 million people. And so if 5% of those people say, oh, I want to see who this female athlete of the year and best fighter is, that was their next opportunity. And it seems like a lot of people got on board sort of in that six, eight months between the fight with Kat Zingano and the fight with Betch Cohea. And I think that's just going to continue because we've seen Ronda, you know, this fight was announced on Good Morning America. She's been on Ellen. She guest hosted SportsCenter. So she's done more in the mainstream and more outside of the bubble in promotion of this fight than any fight before. And I think that just, I mean, just clicking through Twitter this morning, Complex Sports has a story up of literally a sound clip from the press conference yesterday where Ronda gave a next question to Stephen Morocco of MMA Junkie when he tried to ask about her hanging up on the conference call a couple weeks back. So She's definitely getting attention in areas where she normally hasn't or previously hasn't. And I think that's going to gonna translate and continue to 
to draw new eyes to to these events. It, it's uh, you know, man, we could do a whole podcast on this, and I know <laughs> we have a plan for you. Uh, that you've laid out that you'd like to talk about this week, and it does involve Rondo. We'll get to that in a minute. But that's fascinating to me that, you know, you get MMA fighters who, or MMA media rather, who are talking to fans of the sport who get blown off versus Ellen. How many people who watch Ellen are actually going to buy a pay-per-view? And I guess what you're saying is lots, because this is the well, translator. I, I, this is the number. I, I'm, I'm just puzzled by the whole thing, this... You know, the strategy of the UFC to put out free fight night events to try and get us to know these other fighters to draw in sports fans doesn't seem to work as putting Ronda on Ellen. Yeah, I, th I think the UFC knows they have a baseline number for pay-per-view. They have sort of a, a what they can almost guarantee from fight fans with these pay-per-views and we've seen it with some of the smaller, less successful ones, you know, headlined by DJ headlined by TJ Dillashaw, things like that, where the potential for growth is outside of the MMA market. And it sucks for, you know, MMA media that are trying to get one-on-ones with Rhonda or whatever the case may be, because she's occupied doing all this other stuff. But from the UFC standpoint of it, there's far more eyes watching Ellen on a given Tuesday or Wednesday than are reading MMA fighting or especially reading keyboard Kimura to put that time and energy there. And so if they can get, I mean, Rhonda was, was one of the more popular Halloween costumes this year for young girls. Um, if they can get that kind of mainstream penetration and, and into new markets and potentially even new demographics, I understand where it's going. I think it sucks for MMA media types that, that want that one-on-one -on -one access and are looking to tell a greater story with Ronda in the preamble to her fights. But I get where it's coming from. And, and if it's creating a return for the UFC, they're going to keep doing following that same approach. Yeah, I, I just wonder, are those... You know, there is definitely an element... Of, and I, we're gonna, I'm going to have a video attached to some of our stories, two of our younger female reporters here who aren't UFC fans at all. In fact, one of them kind of abhors violence, um, but read Rhonda's book and found her to be this incredibly intriguing character. And I get that, but I wonder how many of them will watch a pay-per-view, even if they're going to a bar, and really get it, like really be hooked into it and understand the competition and the strategy or will they be turned off by the blood and the violence if, if that happens to, to come off? You never know how these cards go. Um, some fights more gory than others. So it's, it's an interesting pursuit by the UFC, but obviously the numbers bear that out. And that is the big question here. Um, with the last with Ronda's last fight, UFC 190 against Betch Cohea, I know Ben Folks has talked about this a couple times on their podcast, the co-main event, um, did a story on, so Ronda Rousey grew up with a speaking disorder. I forget what it is called at the moment. Um, a mother whose daughter suffers from the same thing, read the book, found out about it, went, went to one of the signings. Ronda had a great interaction with the daughter and then did sort of a, a tweet out or a social media blast about this disorder. And obviously the mother and daughter then hooked on Rhonda as a figure want to watch her next fight. Well, the first fight of that pay-per-view was Claudia Gedalia and Jessica Aguiar, where Claudia Ooh. Gedalia absolutely pummeled Jessica Aguiar, broke her nose, 
And I guess in, in going back and talking to this woman, sort of following the event, she said, yeah, Ronda was great. It's great to see her, what she does. But that first fight, the woman's nose was already broken and she was already bleeding. So why did it have to continue? And I think that's going to be the interesting thing is, is do people come on board, as you said, do they get it? Do they become fans of the sport? Do they just remain fans of Ronda? Is there everything else that turns them off? And so they just kind of pick and choose and, and wait and see the replays and things like that. That's going to be the, the interesting part to me. And it's why sort of as we set up here for this, for our, for our main event of the week, why yeah. I think pairing Ronda and Joanna is such a great call and such the right decision because it gives you that opportunity to showcase another dominant female alongside the one everybody's tuning in to see. So let's talk about that. This is the, the, what you see as the main event, why it is so intriguing. Um, you know, why are you looking forward to this card so much? This is our main event and you are going to talk about the main event of this pay-per-view and the co-main. <laughs> well, for me, it, it, it started back after Joanna's title defense against Jessica Panay, which was on Fight Pass from Berlin. Um, you saw the social media reaction where fight fans were absolutely captivated by this woman. She's technical, she's precise, she's, you know, violent in the cage. And then she gets on the mic with Dan Hardy and she's charming and shows that personality. And she's, she's so easy to fall in love with from a, as a competitor and as somebody to watch grow and you can see the star power. And so my thoughts and, and wrote about this at Keyboard Kimura coming out of it was who she fought next wasn't as important as where she fought. She needed a platform where you could expose her to more people. And I said right away, put her in a fight with Ronda Rousey. This was pre-Ronda <laughs> fighting Betch Kohea where, where we had this explosion. And so it just, to me, made sense because if you're going to draw people in that are automatically going to be interested in Ronda, you're going to have that different media attention that is there because it's Ronda you get that residual on another dominant female champion, um, another dominant athlete that can be a star for you if she's given that exposure and if she gets that chance to flourish. I mean, Joanna really came into the forefront earlier this year when she stole the show at UFC 185. She's there as, as sort of, you know, you look at the four participants in the main and co-main event, both were title fights. She was the least known of the group, but just stood out and became this big star who everybody was suddenly intrigued with because she's giving Carla Esparza cookies and she's saying, don't worry about pronouncing my last name. You could just call me Joanna champion. Um, and then she's going out and making that happen. And so to me, it just, it, it makes sense because it gives you a chance to put um, both female fights together, which is something that has never happened and, and recognizes the impact the female divisions and the women's divisions has have had in the UFC in the three short years that we've had them, but it also gives you a chance to build a star in Joanna off sort of the glow that is automatically coming to Ronda Rousey. The, and, and, but the frustrating thing here, Spencer, is that everyone will look at, at Ronda still. And I, this is what makes this fight with Holly Holm. I, I don't, I don't even know if it makes it intriguing, but you know, Holly Holm was someone as a boxing champion who's just been learning MMA 
that you kind of thought down the road might be a worthy foe. I'm not sure that she is at this point, um, and I, I'm not sure who is. But there's unfortunately, you're not looking at. There are two women's weight classes, but they're not sort of adjoining each other. There's what it's 125 and 135, right? So for people that small, men or women to move up or down, that's a lot of weight. It's very frustrating that you're going to have these two dominant female champions, and even at a catch weight, there's no way really for them to meet, right? Yeah, they're they're 135 and 115, so you have the there you go, 135, the, even worse, 115. Yeah, yeah, the 125 in the middle, which ironically is sort of probably the best case scenario division for a lot of female fighters that can drop down from 35 or or not you know deplete themselves as much as we see some some of the 115s do but i don't think it necessarily even needs to be about can they eventually meet i i think the strawweight division 115 is deep enough and we see some of the young talent bubbling up and and rising to the top that it has to me almost a greater staying power and greater intrigue going forward than 135 always has because we saw before Ronda even got to the UFC, she disposed of Misha Tate, she disposed of Sarah Kaufman, who were two of the three previous champions in Strike Force. Um, then she came over and, you know, has continued this reign of dominance where she's won six straight fights. We're just starting out with Joanna. We're just starting out with some of these female fighters that are climbing the ranks in that division. So we we could see more intrigue and more interesting fights, more compelling fights at strawweight going forward that we don't necessarily get to a point where it's, okay, well, can these two dominant women fight already? Well, you know, you're right. I think that Joanna, as dominant as good as she is, there are people that you look at to be contenders. If Holly Holm gets knocked down here, um, and this is another <laughs> first rounder, what is next for Rousey? Do they go back to a pissed off Misha Tate? Who I get where she's coming from, Spencer, but and she is the word she she's earned that right to fight again to be in a title fight, maybe just even for a bigger purse. But who believes that that's going to be a competitive fight, even if? It's a when you look in comparison, it's amazing that Misha Tate got into the third round with Ronda Rousey. Amazing, although as we've heard from Ronda in the past, maybe part of that is she prolonged the fight because on purpose because she wanted to hurt her. But what would be next for Rousey if she has another dominant win? And what does that do? And something you've written about this week at Keyboard Kimura about burning contenders because I feel that way a little bit about home here. I think that she. Uh, considering her boxing background, if she had more experience, more seasoning, if she got to fight someone like Misha Tate as a step, maybe there would be more of a chance. But I'm going into this fight saying this is another Twitter fight. This is the whole video in 45 seconds. <laughs> I don't know that it's going to be another Twitter fight. I, I think Holly's use of, of footwork and movement will will buy her at least, a, I mean, it'll buy her more than 30 set, the 30-second video that you can watch of some of the last few fights. But I kind of think that that they maybe jumped the gun a little bit with this Holly home fight. I think you had Misha in position where you can make that fight. Yes. It's, it's not necessarily a fight where everybody says, Oh, well, she's done enough that the results are going to change, but it's a fight that sells. It's a fight that you can build up. It would be fine as the main event of this fight. Um, I think part of the reason they sort of shotgunned Holly into this is you only hold that unbeaten appeal until you lose a fight and so instead of risking her 
losing a fight to an Amanda Nunez or Misha or Juliana Pena, someone like that, you get her in there with the champ when she is undefeated and you can sell her as former world champion boxer, undefeated MMA fighter, Holly Holm versus former world championship boxer. She's won two of her last three MMA fighter, Holly Holm. But it does leave sort of a dearth of, of challengers going forward. And, and we looked at this on Keyboard Kimura this week. In the title view, I think there's a couple people that are still out there that, that haven't fought Ronda Rousey yet. Not that I think they necessarily beat her or even give her a great challenge. But Amanda Nunez has tremendous power. We saw that in her fight with Sarah McMahon. And Juliana Pena has been somebody that, you know, coming off season 18 of The Ultimate Fighter, everyone sort of viewed her as a future contender. And I think she too is kind of getting hustled up the ranks a little bit. She seems to want it. She said in Houston after her win, you know, I'm at this point, Rhonda's at this point. It just makes sense. If, if that's not what's next for me, then, then, you know, there's, there's limited options. So I think there are a couple other potential challengers, but we're starting to, we're starting to get to that point where, wow. She's really cleaned it out. Well, and, and one of the reasons, Spencer, is that you talk about Pena and, and various other people, even home. There, there to me, is almost a, a feeling of, okay, we got to get this done before Ronda moves on, right? Before, and, and maybe this is the strategy of going on Ellen, is that Ronda, in a, in a way, is not trying to sell pay-per-views. She's trying to sell herself as a movie TV action star um, down the road. She's already ventured in there, but she's been pretty been pretty clear about not wanting to fight forever. And she actually came out this week with some of the, and I know it's pre fight type stuff, but she came out with a lot of this. Look, this job is stressful. It's not that easy to just go out and keep beating people. You're the champ. You're the boss. She talked about the pressure of paying people in her camp. And I keep reading stuff about her coach, Spencer. This is weird. Like he has a fight <laughs> with the mom. He goes bankrupt. It's, it seems like there's some dysfunction in that camp, but she's an incredibly loyal person. But it's it's pretty obvious to me. This is what she does. This is what she does well. She's getting the most out of it, and then she's going to transition into the the star role in in you know whether it's acting or some other form like that. Um, so I, I I can see why they're looking at Juliana Pena going well. I can't look three years down the road for my shot to fight Rousey. I'm going to have to do it now. Uh, but I, I I don't know. I just don't. I can sit here and say all I want I, that I don't believe you're going to see a great fight. You'll see a moment of greatness, but not a great fight. But people still flock to it and they want to buy it. And I guess that's why Ronda Rousey is as big a star as she is. She's just so compelling to people. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I I mean, I don't think we see Ronda fighting three years from now. I think she's moved on to, to Hollywood full-time or the WWE or both because the WWE seems to be a lot more lenient in understanding of, of – letting their, their fighters really cross over yeah. in that way. Um, and she has the potential to, I think. Um, and I think to me that that's the other part of adding Joanna to this card against Val Letourneau in the co-main event is you almost, it, it's not quite going to be a passing of the torch because I don't think Ronda is just going to win and then, you know, say I'm out of here. But it's a we, we've seen some stuff this week from the UFC. Megan Olivi did a great interview with the two of them, Ron and Joanna, talking about the mutual respect they have for each other, sort of showcasing that relationship. And I think this becomes a little bit of a if you love Ronda the way you do, 
don't overlook Joanna because she's as dominant. She's, you know, even less bristly than Rhonda, um, more charismatic in a way. And, and so I think that's the other part of it for me is, is it sort of setting the stage almost for a post Rhonda UFC where the women's divisions still are important. And it shows that the UFC still wants to move forward with this, um, rather than it being what we thought sort of at the start of Ronda's arrival being, well, they're in this until Ronda decides to leave and then they'll just scrap everything. They're invested in, in women's MMA and it's good to see. And it's, it's great to see, you know, the, the women closing out this show this weekend. Cause to me, that's the underreported story of the week is, is just how historic this is and how far the UFC has come in three years. So what happens? I know you I do your punch drunk predictions <laughs> later in the week, but in these two two fights, what do you think happens? I think Joanna wins pretty handily. I think it it uh, it looks a lot like her fight with Carla Esparza, where she just shuts down anything that that Val tries to do. Val did did well in Saskatoon countering Marina Moroz. That doesn't necessarily work very well against against Joanna, who is a cleaner, more technical, quicker striker. Um, I think that one ends faster than Ronda's fight with Holly Holm does. I think Holly's probably going to be able to get it to the third round just by kind of following a, a Carlos Condit versus Nick Diaz game plan of of landing when you can and then circling out and resetting in the center of the cage and, and trying to stay away from her as long as possible while, while scoring some points on the outside. But ultimately, I see Ronda winning because Ronda's just Ronda so far. And until... Until somebody beats her and until somebody even pushes her, you can't pick against her. Um, will we ever see? Because, look, you know that's going to happen. Ronda's going to come out. She's going to do her thing. We're going to see tweets and interviews with Cyborg, blah, 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 some trash <laughs> talk in the media. I just hope Floyd Mayweather is not relevant this weekend at all. But are we ever going to see Rousey Cyborg? We'll know a little more in, in a few months as as Cyborg is scheduled to fight at 140 in Invicta uh, coming up before the end of the year, I believe. And so if she can make that without any issue and, and feeling good, it makes it a greater possibility. Um, I think if she can't, it becomes less of a less likely just unless it becomes Ronda's sort of go-away fight, and they do it at 145, and you just wait and see what happens. But I'm skeptical. I, I don't know that it ever comes together. I think it would be a missed opportunity, but I also think there's there's risk involved for Ronda in the UFC, and so they'll be very cautious about well, it. Well, it shatters the myth. If if, right. if she's looking to you know retire, and I, I believe if she does walk away, she'll probably have a comeback fight at some point. And you do, if she if she has this plan for it to be a go away fight, the big, the last big rival, how can she go away if she loses? Right. You know, and, that, and, so, and that's going to be the question. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the fight of the week because um, I know that there's one you want to highlight, but I just do want to point out because I find it very interesting in frame of the conversation that we've just had that you look at who the UFC is courting in this. Um, with the two female fighters so dominant and there's no doubt female fights can be brutal. Absolutely. But if you are bringing, and I'm sorry to keep going to the Ellen reference, but if you are going to Ellen fans who are going to check this out, I wonder how they are going to react to 
you know, Hunt and Silva, who are two big guys who last time they fought, it was a brutal fight. Stefan Struve's fighting Rochalt, and Struve has suffered some of the more brutal knockouts that I've seen as this ultra-tall fighter. He just seems to leave himself open to shots. And the fight I know you want to highlight, uh, Uriah Hall against Robert Whitaker. Uriah Hall is, when he's motivated, is one of the most violent, quick, brutal men in UFC. It will be interesting to see if people are coming to check this out and get a heavy dose with those three other fights on the main card. Yeah, there's a very real possibility that you sit through four grisly fights and and devastating finishes, potentially, before you get to Ronda, who is known for devastating finishes as well. So, as you said, you you could be courting some Ellen fans that just decided to come in and, you know, they saw Ronda's display of of hip-tossing a, a production assistant and arm-barring <laughs> them. And then they get, you know, Jared Rochelle blasting Stefan Struve. Uh, Uriah Hall landing some kind of crazy spinning hook kick on Robert Whitaker or vice versa, Robert Whitaker knocking out Uriah Hall in devastating fashion and then a, a rematch slobber knocker between Mark Hunt and Bigfoot Silva. So it'll be interesting. But but yeah, my fight of the week this week, and we've sort of always talked about Uriah Hall and that was part of the reason I wanted to include this yeah, I'm a fight. Huge fan because I know he's a guy that that caught your attention and caught a lot of people's attention on the ultimate fighter because he looked so good and so dominant. Then he came out and kind of fell flat, had some okay wins, but never looked great. Then he goes out a couple months ago and just lands a beautiful kick on Gegard Mousasi where now coming into it. And the first note I have is, is a question of is Uriah Hall turning a corner? Like this is an opportunity finally to see if, if this guy really has put it all together or if not to say the Musasi fight was a fluke, but was it just a great moment for him? Was it just a great performance for him? And now we'll go back to seeing a tentative Uriah Hall against the kid in Robert Whitaker, who to me has the potential to be a star for the UFC in Australia and maybe abroad a little bit because he's looked great since moving up. Great hands, only 24, obvious knockout power, iron chin so far and getting in there against the guy that a lot of people are already familiar with. Yeah, if um I mean Uriah Hall may be the best pure athlete in his division, but going back he didn't win his season of the Ultimate Fighter. He breezed to the final and everyone thought he would, but he actually lost to Kelvin Gastelum and the narrative out of there in his first few fights in the UFC was, you know, and Dana White can be pretty blunt at times, was that this kid wasn't mean enough that he wasn't he didn't have the killer instinct and he didn't he has these amazing tools. And he doesn't necessarily want to use him. Now, you've also said that there's a little bit of diva in him as well. But if you look at the stats, I mean, you know, Hall's 13 and 5, Whitaker's 14 and 4. Um, knockout percentage, though, 77% for Hall. I say only 47% for Whitaker. Um, that's pretty amazing. Whitaker, clearly the better the better technician, much more of a submission fighter, but does have that power as well. Uh, it's an interesting matchup, but again, you can physically look at this, Spencer, but as you said, with a guy like Uriah Hall, you just have to look at his mindset. Is he all in or isn't he? Yeah, and, and it's interesting because you look at his results and you think, well, he's 5-1 and one since that loss, since his loss to John Howard um, in in Boston a couple summers ago. And, and yes, there have been a couple stoppages in there and a couple first-round stoppages. He seems to do really well against the guys that he absolutely is supposed to beat. 
And then the guys that it's a little bit of a tougher fight, it becomes sort of, he lays off the gas a little bit. The Tiago Santos fight went to a decision. He probably should have been able to get him out of there. Um, lost the split decision to Rafael Natal in a fight where we sat cage side thinking, why is this guy letting off the gas? Like it's the third round of a relatively close fight. You need to be throwing everything you got. And then you see a fight like the fight with Musasi where he lands this spinning back kick perfectly. And he showed that killer instinct coming out to start that second round. You wonder where that has been this whole time. And, and can he channel it so that he is that guy from the opening seconds of round one through to the end of the fight? Because I think if he doesn't, Robert Whitaker probably lights him up here because Robert Whitaker is a guy that's going to just come forward and keep throwing hands and trust his chin and trust his power. Because if he gets knocked out, he gets knocked out. I mean, he got knocked out against Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, bounced right back, has won three fights since. And we've seen his ability to finish fights. We've seen his aggression. And so I think this fight brings the best out of Uriah Hall. I hope I'm right. I hope this becomes a fight where we talk about the winner as a really intriguing addition to the middleweight ranks going forward. Well, the funny thing is, I think if I... You you were you go much deeper on this stuff than I do, but I look at the rankings and I look at Whitaker at fourteen and I look at Hall at ten. But I think a a win or a, a good win, a dominant win from either of them, or a good showing, could really vault them up uh, up the uh, up the rankings. I mean, you talked about Hall beating Musasi. Musasi's still ranked ahead of him at number eight. But you got Bisping, Tim Kennedy, even Mashida, who hasn't looked great lately. V- Belfort, who we just saw. You know, again, why is Dan Henderson still in the ring? Um, you know, you've got Weidman as a champion, then Rockhold, then Souza, who's had injury problems below him. As they're the top three in the division. I see the winner of this fight, especially considering their ages. There could be a lot of movement here. I mean, you could put yourself, I don't even want to say in the title picture, but maybe one fight away from the title picture pretty quickly, even though they're both in the double digits in terms of rankings. Yeah, and that's the other intriguing part of this. I mean, Robert Whitaker, this was originally supposed to be a fight against Michael Bisping. Mike got hurt, had to have surgery on his elbow, um, and and Hall stepped up to replace him. But yeah, absolutely, this is a fight that, you know, the winner to me falls into that 5 through 10 range where there are some good fights. Tim Kennedy has talked about wanting to come back. As you said, Machida hasn't looked great. Bisping is still a possibility, and so you look at sort of where the division is at right now and the picture that's being laid out, Chris Weidman and, and Luke Rockhold fight later this year, Jacare Souza and, and Yoel Romero are on that card fighting each other as well. So you could suddenly be at a point where there's one established contender and then a bunch of guys all kind of jockeying for position where, as you said, one more good win over a top five, top 10 ranked guy makes you the next contender. So there's a lot sort of two steps away on this or one step away on this that that makes this such an intriguing fight for me. Um, I know you've got some things in our championship round you want to talk about, but are there any other thoughts on anything else in this card before we move on? The, I mean, there's the, the preliminary card is, is loaded up with, with Australian talent. I'm still a believer in Jake Matthews. I know he lost his last fight. Um, to James Vick. He's just a young kid that I think is, is developing his game still and is still learning how to be a fighter and, and put it all together. I mean, he's 21 years old. 
give him a few years. You know, we, we always talked about Rory being this eventual champion. Well, Rory had to have a couple losses as well to sort of learn from some of those mistakes. Not that I necessarily think Jake Matthews is going to be a Rory McDonald caliber fighter, but I think he has the potential. I think he's a talented kid who has athleticism, who has finishing abilities that just needs to get more seasoning and needs to get a little more experience. So he's, he's the one guy on this preliminary card that I'm really looking forward to seeing again. And I think has, has a lot of upside, but, for the most part, this is a, a pay-per-view card where where you're interested in, and invested in the pay-per-view event itself. Okay, so let's move on to the <laughs> champion. Well, no, I agree. I think that, you know, this is this is one of those ones. I, I always think that there should be perhaps I would have liked to see maybe one other marquee fight almost like two co-mains because I think the potential of Ronda ending it early is there. Um, but there's, there's enough on, there's certainly enough on this pay-per-view to, to have me ready to buy it for sure this weekend. But, um, I know as we talk about whether you're compelled to order something or not, what makes that decision, you have something very intriguing in your, um, in your championship rounds to finish this off here, Spencer. But one of the things that I find interesting, I know what your take on this is going to be, and I agree with it, but I did see that this past weekend off the fight night event, that it actually was outdrawn by Bellator. Yeah, so I mean, and this becomes the so our championship rounds, the 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 heading or the headline that I sent to Paul as we set this up is Bellator bookings. Obviously, talking about announced last week or a couple of weeks ago now, Hoist Gracie versus Ken Shamrock three, Kimbo Slice versus Defear Harris, who is known as Data Five Thousand. He is a fellow. South Florida backyard brawler. You can learn all about him in the very good documentary by Billy Corbin, who did the 30 for 30, the U on Netflix called dog fight. That's D a W G fight. Um, it's, I mean, my take on it is, Oh my God, this is the worst thing in the world because these guys are headlining, but it's, it's true. Bellator has done so well with these freak show fights with these nostalgia fights they outdrew last weekend's event for the UFC in terms of overall ratings. Um, and so it's it's sort of hard to knock it from a you're doing business on Spike standpoint. But from a the, the point for me and, and one of Bellator's champions, uh, lightweight champ, Ill Will Brooks, has talked about this a bunch. Is like they put all of this energy behind promoting Kimbo and Phil Davis when he first came over and showcasing, oh my God, it's Hoist Gracie versus Ken Shamrock when their combined age when they hit the cage will be 101 years old. <laughs> and here's Will Brooks, who has been a good soldier for Bellator almost from the very beginning, who is a dominant champion for them, who is a charismatic, engaging dude on social media and somebody that can be a star who never gets to be on the who who doesn't get to be on these tent pole events who doesn't get the same attention and the same shine and it makes me wonder are you running the risk of losing these guys that can be long term sort of foundation pieces for you because you're you're putting all your eggs in the Ken Shamrock Hoist Gracie basket where you got one maybe two fights out of them and then it goes away and you're looking around like okay, who do we go to next? Because you can't keep making 
nostalgia fights forever. I don't think like there comes a point where yeah, it's, it can't be the masters tour. Right. It, it just like the UFC isn't going to release Chuck Liddell and you're not going to be able to, to convince Chuck Liddell to come back for one more against Tito and Randy Couture probably isn't going to get a chance to fight again. So you, you hit a point even just where there's going to be a gap between fighters that people know and fighters that people don't know. And so you need guys like these homegrown fighters that they have, these champions that they have. Their event last weekend was a great fight, was a great fight card. Two title fights, entertaining fights top to bottom. You hear far less about it than you do these ridiculous tentpole shows where, you know, they're bringing in Dada 5000 to fight Kimbo because let's create some trumped up sort of beef that really did die several years ago. And so it's just like, I, for me, I don't understand how you could take, how you could take them seriously when this is what they're putting out there as come see the big Bellator event of the winter with these dudes that haven't fought in forever and aren't nearly as gifted or as talented as the guys that we have grown that we don't talk about. Well, you know, there are a few other and ownership of these things is always sketchy, but you've got, you know, the world series of fighting, you've got Invicta, you've got Bellator, uh, you know, there are some of these other circuits or Bellator, which is kind of acclaimed as the number two. Are they going to be at risk of losing that? Or is this stunt, you know, somewhat WWE aspect working for them? I, I mean, I saw a very heartfelt clip from a, a documentary from Ken Shamrock who explained his bizarre loss to Kimbo Slice and seemed extremely upset with Joe Rogan who suggested the fight was fake because of the way it ended and because he feels they're trying to push Kimbo, which really would be more of the pro wrestling element. But, you know, is this working for them or, or is the opportunity there for another outfit to step up and go, you know what, they're not doing this job of building good young talent that's not getting the opportunity in the UFC. We're happy to do that. I think they're, I think they have sort of a firm grasp on number two, Viacom and Spike have combined to give them a platform where, you know, you can see them whenever they want to run events on Friday nights on Spike and on Saturday nights on Spike, they're good to go. And so it gives them that flexibility and that opportunity to have these events. And I mean, the ratings are there. It's, it's hard to argue with the results that they've put up on Spike TV um, since Scott Coker came in and took over as, as president from Bjorn Rebney and started going this route of, of getting rid of the tournament format that they used to have, of bringing in some of these established familiar names and, and using them as the top of these events like Kimbo, like Ken Shamrock, like Tito Ortiz, and now like Hoyce Gracie. Um, so I don't think they run any risk of, of sort of being replaced as the number two. For me, it becomes a question of do they want to close the gap on the UFC or are they absolutely happy, comfortable, perfectly content being the number two, doing the good ratings with these tentpole events headlined by legends, veterans, you know, nostalgia fights, whatever you want to call them, and just doing relatively well with the rest of their events with the homegrown guys. The interesting part, as I said earlier, for me is going to be when some of these guys come to the end of their contract, do they look to exit right away and, and go to the UFC or go somewhere else because they feel like they haven't gotten the opportunity that 
their results and, and what they've done deserve. And so that's going to be the bigger part for me. I don't think Bellator is going anywhere. I think they, they're doing a very good job at being the number two organization and being sort of a different alternative to the UFC at times. But it's going to be it's going to be intriguing to see what happens when some of these guys' contracts run out and come up for renegotiation. Whether they say, you know, I'm out because you didn't you didn't give us the support that you gave these guys that you brought in, or whether they just stick around because it's a greater opportunity than going and and starting further down the ladder in the UFC. Well, you know, the the risk you run with always going after the old names too is that. Uh... You could have something really bad happen. I mean, I look at a guy like Tito Ortiz, who you, you mentioned Chuck Liddell. UFC is looking after Chuck Liddell. A guy like Ortiz always seems to, he can be out of it for two, three years, and then is like, well, what else am I going to do? And he goes back to fight. And, you know, Ken Shamrock fighting at 51, still an incredibly tough guy. And as he pointed out, you know, he knew what Kimbo Slice was going to do. And it was a little bit bizarre how that finished. Um he claims it was a referee's mistake, and other people claim, well, it was 51, and he just couldn't finish the job. But yep. uh, you put a guy who's in his 50s in a ring like that, and bad things can happen, and that that's not good for your organization. Well, and that's that's the other part of it, too, is, is there is a human element to this of should Ken Shamrock still be fighting at 51 after the amount of battles he's been through after, you know, should – should Hoist Gracie be coming back having not fought in however many years? I mean, it's similar to sort of what we're hearing about the potential New Year's Eve card in Japan with, with Fedor, that he might fight Suyoshi Kosaka, who is a UFC veteran but hasn't fought in more than a decade. I mean, TK was around back in the dark ages and was great and was sort of, you know, one of those inaugural um cross-training kind of guys with Frank Shamrock and Morty Smith, but he hasn't fought in a decade. And and so is that a guy that should be getting back into the cage and, and getting back into competition? Are these the guys that you should be building events around because don't we have, isn't there an obligation? I mean, we know inherently that this is a violent sport, that there are potential physical ramifications and consequences that come with it. Is there a point where we have to look out for the well-being of these fighters that maybe aren't necessarily doing it themselves? And so, as you said, you get a guy that's 51 against a guy that's, you know, 45 or 46, there's there's questions and there's challenges. And so you see what happens and, and hopefully everything, you know, hopefully nothing bad comes of it but it becomes one of the the many questions about booking fights and building events this way. Yeah, and um that that's a great one. I think it's a, it's a point well worth talking about. I I just do want to finish up before we go. This is an incredibly busy period. You start with a pay-per-view this weekend and going for less than a month into December, the next pay-per-view at UFC 194, there are six different events um with some great names that are going to be fighting uh, including a great Thursday, uh, Friday package in, in early, mid-December. Thursday, December 10th, you've got a fight night that has, uh, I find this hilarious, that you've got Paige Van Zandt and Sage North got on the same card. Um, no surprise what they're doing there. And then the next night for the Ultimate Fighter finale uh, on the Friday, you've got Frankie Edgar and Chad Mendez. Like, it's insane what we're going to see here in this next month. Like Six different events, lots of big names, lots of chances to jump in. 
Yeah, there's it. It really is. And last week was pretty much the kickoff to the home stretch. Uh, seven events, and I believe it's six weeks. Uh, as you said, three in a row: Thursday, Friday, Saturday in Las Vegas, uh, December 10, 11, and twelve. Uh, flights are booked. Stay at key, at Keyboard Kimura headquarters in Las Vegas is booked. Uh, we will be down there covering it. It's a ton of fights. It's it really is. I mean, shout out to the UFC for for reading Keyboard Kimura and and booking this the way I suggested potentially booking it coming out of. Uh, the July event where they had the pay-per-view and then the, the tough finale on the Saturday. I think it's the right way to go. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it capitalizes on having all of the media there for a massive pay-per-view at the end of the year. It showcases some of the young talent. It gives lots of people some opportunities for exposure that maybe they don't get if there's a week in between all of these shows. Um, and I mean... Listen, it's, people are going to laugh and, and make the jokes about the page, page and Sage on the same card. But listen, it's a fight pass event. It's a chance to showcase two young fighters that are on the way up that they believe can be stars for them. And so why wouldn't you pair them together? And, and it's not like they're on the main card of a pay-per-view or co-main event of, of the fight, the, the ultimate fighter finale the next week. It's a fight pass show. So... And it's not like they're getting hustled into anything that that they don't deserve yet. Paige Van Zandt has worked her way up. I think the fight with Rose Namajunas is a great fight um, that tells us a lot about both of them going forward. And Sage Northcutt is fighting another dude that has like two fights in the UFC and is coming off a loss, or is coming off a win, but lost his first fight in the UFC. So it's not like he's getting some opportunity that's crazy. So. It's going to be nuts. It's going to be a, a crazy three-day stretch in Las Vegas. I'm actually staying down on the Sunday specifically just to sleep and not do a lot of anything else so that I'm not trying to rush home after being at three straight events uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But we will have all of that covered once we get to December. It's, uh, it is great stuff. Spence, a couple quick notes before we leave. Um, I don't want to read anything into this because it's just a website. I do find it curious that John Jones has been officially reinstated and they don't even have him on the rankings yet. Is there anything behind that? I don't think so. I think it just becomes a, like, where do you put him? Like, I, I mean, you, you would have to put him as the number one contender. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I, I don't know that he's been reactive. I don't take part in the UFC media rankings. Uh, so I don't know that he's been re reactivated in the system. Um, I would think you would have to have to vote him in as the number one guy. It may just be to avoid some of the, the awkwardness of people saying he should, he should still be the champion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I did, you mentioned Rory McDonald. I, I wanted to ask if you'd heard anything on Rory, of course, uh, you know, still coming off that brutal fight in, in July with Robbie Lawler and needed lots of time to recover. But, uh, you know, it's been pretty quiet from his camp. I'm just kind of curious how that's going and what we think lies ahead for him. I think what lies ahead for him is is about with Hector Lombard, uh, which was originally supposed to take place last last year in Montreal before Lombard tested positive and was suspended for a year. Um, Rory's talked about being interested in that fight again, and a lot of it is just having to wait for his nose to heal. There were several different fractures and breaks in his nose from that epic fight against Robbie Lawler. So he's just been been taking the time and getting getting healthy. He's been back in the gym. 
he's been at TriStar helping guys and, and getting back to it. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if we saw that fight in the first quarter of 2016. Okay, great stuff, Spence. Uh, go get your rest because it's a busy month coming up with all those events. Uh, great to hear you're going to Vegas, though. Pre-Christmas in Vegas, that's going to be crazy, especially considering uh, you know I had friends who were down there for that Rory fight um, with Connor and uh, just talked of the scene on the streets and the Irishman and and there was he, he said there was he'd been to several fights there was a different atmosphere for that I'm sure having the three fights leading up to it going to make it even more so so a lot to look forward to in this ne- next month yeah it's, it's going to be nuts the uh, the UFC 189 event coming out of the way as we honestly got sort of detoured and held up in a traffic jam inside the MGM Grand because the Irish fans had decided to stop and start chanting and cheering and singing in the middle of the casino. And, and it was a sight to be seen. So looking forward to experiencing all of that again, getting to see some of my, my media friends from Ireland that I'm sure will be making the trip over and, and bringing more great coverage of this great sport to, to keyboard Kamara in the province. All right. And uh, in the meantime, you can watch Ellen. In the meantime, I can watch Ellen. There you go. Um, thanks for doing this this week, Spencer. If you want to catch up with anything Spencer's doing, check him out on Twitter at Spencer Kite. K-Y-T-E is the last name. Uh, find the stuff he does for us at Keyboard Kimura, uh, his blog at theprovince.com. So thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Spencer. And we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Read the Keyboard Kimura blog on theprovince.com. Follow them on Twitter at Keyboard Kimura or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash keyboardkimura.